Hello and welcome to this week's Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle. And this week I'm joined by Emma Ajman, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Ed Smith, Asset Allocation Strategist at Rathbones. So today we're going to be looking at what's been happening in the markets this month and how it could affect you. And then we're also going to look at one property and one infrastructure investment trust. And then we're going to talk about why discounts have widened out on UK equity income investment trusts. Um, so a lot to tackle today. But first, we're going to look at Hickel Infrastructure. And Emma, you've been talking to this fund manager, haven't you? Yeah. What does the trust invest in? What is it? So it's a trust that mostly invests in public sector infrastructure assets like schools, hospitals, government accommodation. And it prefers to invest in fully operational projects rather than um, those under construction. And most of its projects are structured using a public-private partnership PPP model. Um, so yeah, that's the, which is the, the benefit of those kind of assets is that they give good predictable income and in, often inflation-linked income. Okay. So that's that's basically what this trust does, does. And so, what kind of yield is it throwing off? Currently, you know, pretty good yield of four point four percent. Okay, and so that is, I guess, the appeal. Yeah. Um, And that is also, I assume, why it's trading on quite a large premium, is it? Um, It's definitely one of the reasons. So, yeah, as of today, it's trading on a premium of 19.8%. But it's far from alone in in having such a high premium. All the infrastructure investment trusts are trading at, at pretty sort of um, large premiums. The average is sixteen point two at the minute, and as you say, that's that's often because you know they've got strong yields because of the assets they invest in give give good steady income. But it's also the um, exposure to infla- inflation linked assets, which as we've been hearing, you know, we, this week inflation is likely to be going up. So that's that's another one of the reasons that these trusts are in favour at the minute. Okay, now you you say in this piece that the manager Tony Roper he, he's finding it difficult now to find the right assets to buy, or that there are a lot or there's a lot of demand for those. Mm-hmm. Um, so why is that? Um, it's a combination of things, really. You know, in this sort of low yielding environment, people are chasing yield, and so this is one of the reasons that these assets are in high demand, and obviously that's pushing up prices. Um, and there's also an issue with slowdown in the supply of PPP, um, in particular projects. So there's a combination of you know, supply um, side issues and the fact that these assets are very well sought. Okay. You say that he's looking, how is he combating that? Is he looking to other kind of assets? Um, yes, he is. I mean, one of the things the trust is doing is, is widening the type of assets it's investing in, in particular, speaking more about investing in toll roads and electricity transmission projects. Okay. And what does that mean for the risk? Is that going to increase the risk of this fund? Well, I think it's a very good question because, you know, toll roads and electricity transmission projects are higher risk than um, PPP projects and the managers you know, accept that but they argue that it's only slightly higher risk than those the projects that they've invested in so far and they think that the key thing is to make sure that in these projects these new types of assets are not over leveraged and in that sense they think that they can sort of keep the risk of a trust at you know, it's not going to sort of take it much higher. Because what is that risk? What what can go wrong? Well, I mean, the issue with, say, something like toll rolls is that there's a lot more volatility than, say, you would get in a PPP hospital contract, for example. You know, if the volume of traffic falls, um, that can have an impact on, on income. And depending on how over 
you know how much you've leveraged the project um if that sort of volatility is sustained it could affect um the project sort of banking covenants and that sort of thing okay so what's the performance of this trust been like in recent years um it's it's been good over one year it's returned 15 percent, and that's compared to the footsies 10 percent um, and also long term, it's it's done well. Over three years, it's returned 50% compared to just 15 by the FTSE and um, over 90 in five years. OK. Um, Ed, what do you think of this sector at the moment? Do you think it's overpriced? Well, it, it does seem like every investor and their dog has been in this sector over the last uh, five years. Um, as Emma said, it's been mm. fulfilling uh, a much needed um, income. Uh, gap in many investors' portfolios. Uh, one of the other reasons why investors have favoured it is because time and again, during periods of equity market drawdown, uh, the infrastructure trust sector has shown a very low correlation to equity. So from a portfolio construction point of view, mm. functions as quite a nice diversifier, a genuine diversifier. It actually helps you out when equities are, are heading south but you know the combination of those two things has led to some extreme premiums over over nav uh, emma what did you say 19.8 percent on, yeah. on 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 hickle mm-hmm. now and that very much concerns us we've turned quite negative on 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 the sector and actually if you look at some of the green infrastructure trusts mm-hmm. they're trading at 20 25 30 percent over nav mm-hmm. now that mainly concerns us because uh, we talked about the diversifying role well, whilst the NAV may have a low correlation to equities, whilst the NAV may be diversifying, that premium is probably going to have a very high correlation to equity markets during periods of stress because when people sort of sell out of assets indiscriminately because during a market panic, mm. that now that premium to the NAV is going, is going to get hammered and that concerns us and that's why we're negative. And I mean, just talking there about correlations, how, how tied are these share prices to things like low bond yields, to low interest rates, which have obviously been pushing people into these investments? I mean, if we do get, uh, you know, a new market cycle, we get rates rising, will that affect this sector, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you think of how uh, an infrastructure trust is priced, it's a series of cash flows over usually a known lifetime of an infrastructure project. Uh, And it's not really about some long term big payoff like uh, equities. Uh, So because it's about a series of cash flows, they're discounted back into today's price. Part of that discount rate is, is the bond yield. So as bond yields rise, you discount those cash flows back at a uh, at a more punitive uh, rate into today's price, therefore uh, lower valuation. So they're inextricably linked to to bond yields, um, and yeah, yeah it's uh, certainly yeah when the tide turns and uh, bond yields start to rise in a sustained, meaningful way, yeah, when the global economy improves when the saving glut ends then i think these these uh, the tide's going to go out in this sector and i mean emma was talking there about the the difficulty of finding the good assets to buy um i mean the pfi or ppp contracts which underpin this sector have been quite controversial haven't they and we haven't had any new or major new ones in several years i mean is, is that an issue for the kind of the most appealing assets that these trusts hold in terms of you know are there any left well, I mean, it's got to be a, it's got to be a concern. Money's poured into this asset class. The the fund managers are yeah, expected um, to, to 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 make new projects as new funds are launched. You know, they've got to they, they've got to invest uh, the capital if they're bidding for a very small pool of 
projects, it probably means they're going to overbid because, you know, as I said, they, they can't just sit on cash. That's not what they're paid to do. And that's a concern. Yeah, some of these projects have been controversial, but they have been fulfilling uh, something of a need economically. We need to invest in infrastructure. Fortunately, we've had a government for, 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 for most of the last six years that's been obsessed with austerity. So they haven't wanted to invest themselves. Therefore, they need to offer these projects out to public-private partnerships. So, yeah, the the existence of the sector has been a good good thing. Perhaps if the uh, if this government becomes a little less obsessed with austerity, which it looks as though it is is, is doing, I think the sacking of Osborne probably quite um, uh, you know, indicative there. Then uh, perhaps they may do a bit more of it themselves. And and talk of this industrial strategy, which we might get uh, later on. Um, Emma, what does what does Tony say about the potential for future projects? And he's started to look further afield, hasn't he, in the UK? Um, yeah, he has started to look further afield. Um, so the, the trust has currently got about ten percent in Europe, and um, a further six percent sort of outside Europe in Australia and the Can- and Canada. And he says that that's something that he could look to. You know, invest in other assets abroad if they come up at the right prices. Because you know, as has been just been saying, you know, the prices is one of the the key issues. And with the whole currency exchange you know, thing that you also have to consider right now, it's it's something that they're very sort of mindful of. Okay, and we're going to move on now from from one trust at a massive premium to a to a trust definitely not on a premium at the moment, which is TR Property. This is the closed-end property fund manager uh, that you spoke to, isn't it? And he was very negative about open-end funds. Yeah, um, and that's right. I mean, he was saying that he thinks that, in particular, um, open-ended property funds, um, the, the financial regulators should really only consider making closed-ended funds um, the vehicles that, that private investors can invest in in real estate. And the main reason he said that is that, you know, he thinks that the issue with um, daily dealing sort of masks proper, the volatility of these open-ended funds, in particular the fact that the properties that they, you know, that they own are only valued once a month or a quarter, and yet um, investors are offered daily dealing. Um, so he thinks that, that that hides volatility. And also, you know, the liquidity issues that we've seen come up again, again after the Brexit vote, you know, he, he felt that, um, this happened after the financial crisis, and and yet the regulator didn't really do anything about it. And he thinks that you know just, they should do something about it now because he doesn't think this is an issue that's going to go away. Yeah, and it, it was very dramatic mm. um, reaction post Brexit, wasn't it, with those open end property funds? Mm-hmm. But he's not been immune, has he, to Brexit um, no, sentiment not shift? Mm, not at all. I mean, after the, the vote for Brexit, the trust discount widened to um, as much as 18%. It's it's somewhat tightened. It's come in to 12.8%. Um, but obviously, it's it's still, you know, it's all quite a wide discount. Okay. And what, what does he actually invest in? So unlike most property investment trusts, he invests in property shares. So um, rather than physical buildings, and um, he does have a, a small weighting in physical buildings um, of about 7%, but 93% of the trust is in shares. And the majority of um, the portfolio is in European property company shares. Okay. And, and how has he performed? Um, performance has been good. I mean, it's the, the trust has beaten its its index over one, three and five years. Um, I mean, for example, over five years, it's returned 110%. Over the last year, it's it's actually lost money, lost 2%. But, you know, that's compared to a loss of 22% by the index. So, 
Okay. He's still pretty good. And since Brexit, um, has his manager, has he changed what he invests in or, or the strategy at all? Um, I mean, he told me that, you know, before the vote, they were cutting the exposure to London, particularly the high residential property end of things. And that continued after the vote. So he substantially cut that and has no now no, has no exposure in that area. Um, and he's also just generally been trimming his exposure to London, which was the trust, previously the trust's biggest overweight. Um, but now he says all the companies he invests in don't have um, any exposure to the city of London and if focus in other areas. So that's that's a big thing that he's changed since the vote. Okay, so um, for more on both of those interviews, have a look um, at this week's magazine. But we're going to move on now to some more macro topics. And this week in our monthly market roundup column, we had a look at what appears to be a bit of a shift across the market. So we've got bond yields spiking up, we've got bank stocks rallying a bit and inflation finally coming back to the UK. And at the same time in our news section this week, we had a look at a related trend, which is UK equity income investment trusts trading at wider discount than we've seen in many years. So are we on the brink of a bit of a turnaround whereby expensive bond proxy stocks are about to start underperforming? And is it time to start investing again in value stocks? Ed, firstly, let's let's start at the basics. What do we mean when we talk here about bond proxy stocks and why have they been performing so well recently? Uh, well, much like those infrastructure trusts we, we discussed uh, earlier on, bond proxy stocks are equities that are far more about a series of cash flows a series of dividends than they are about some big exponential payoff because you've invested in the next google or something like that so you know so uh so so a technology stock that doesn't pay a dividend and and the growth you know, could could be enormous or clearly wouldn't be a bond proxy a big personal goods companies selling into a really saturated market not loads of growth to come through but delivers a large part of the return via dividends would be a uh, a bond proxy and clearly when bonds haven't been offering much of an income many investors have flocked here but we have at Rathbones we sort of do distinguish between two types of bond proxies basically any equity that has paid a decent dividend has tended to be bid up probably um, sometimes justifiably sometimes unjustifiably now it's justifiable when that company is a proven quality cash compounding company, generates it's got a great uh, spread between the return on capital and the cost of capital, and it delivers a dividend that is very well covered uh, by its income, even when you include capex and things like that. And then there are those bond proxies that uh, don't have good dividend coverage that have really just been caught up in this desperate hunt for yields uh, and if yields start to increase, those ones are probably going to suffer quite badly. The quality cash compounders probably do okay. So some that might be expensive, but kind of, you know, you can feel a bit more comfortable paying over the odds because you have that security of income versus... Exactly. Paying for quality versus paying for just a bit of spurious yield. Mm. And so as, as you were just saying there, these the fate of these stocks or, or share prices is very tied to bond yields, isn't it? And we've had quite a dramatic uptick in particularly gilts, um, gilt yields in the past couple of months. So why why is that? Uh, well, uh, certainly uh, in, in, in gilt yields, it's largely been driven by um, upward revisions to inflation expectations. Remember, a nominal bond yield is, is in part a function of inflation expectations. As the pound has dropped, um, uh, inflation expectations have increased. 
Um, uh, and yeah, inflation expectations are supposed to be forward-looking over 10 years, but as we know, they are a little bit too myopic. They are quite tied to what's going in the economy uh, economy right now. Um, so yeah, that, that's probably the main reason why yields have increased. But of course, you know, remember that they are still pretty near all-time lows. They're still lower uh, than, than 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 yields were before Brexit, so so we have had an uptick, but but I don't think this is uh, them sort of climbing the wall all the way back up to you know two three four percent. Mm, but we're not alone, are we, in the UK with with this slight reversal in in the direction of yields? It's you know had it in Japan, in Europe, and the US. I mean, do you think this is a sense that markets are losing faith with central banks, or the central banks are running out of tools, or is this just volatility? Yeah, no, I don't. Um, I don't think it's uh, it's markets losing faith in in central banks. I think yeah, that's a phrase that we often hear from uh, from 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 um, from clients, from journalists, from from investment managers. Uh, but actually, if you think what that would really mean, you know, central banks underpin the entire economic system. As we know it, you know, they commit to stabilising inflation. In some cases, they commit to maintaining full uh, in, in, in employment, and they steer the interest rates of the economy to the uh, to, to to the neutral rates, the the rates uh, underlying rate that the economy needs to needs to be at to, to uh, equalise savings and investments. If markets lost faith in central banks' ability to do that, I think all hell would break loose. We wouldn't be talking about a 20, 30, 40 bip rise in bond yields. We'd be talking, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, we'd have much graver things things to worry about. Equity markets would tank. But, but isn't that the fear that we're at the end of what a kind of 30-year bull run where asset prices are enormously inflated and, you know, rates are at record lows? And isn't the worry, where do we go from here? Do we have much more? Uh, there is not much more room to cut. So what if we do hit a period of, or, you know, approach another recession? session is not the fear that all hell could break loose. <laughs> um, well, I think there are certainly question marks it, yeah, if we suffered a very deep uh, recession, uh, in particular if it was another sort of balance sheet recession where there would entail a lot of subsequent deleveraging, then yeah, uh, central banks don't have nearly the firepower that they did in 2008. But the good news is, is that a balance sheet recession is very unlikely because leverage in most parts of the world is actually uh, far from what it was uh, going into the financial crisis 2007 to, to 2008. Um, and yeah, when you're thinking about uh, asset prices and is this a bubble waiting to burst, uh, yeah, it's important to think, okay, well, what has been driving bond yields lower. It's not just the, the, the whim and fancy of central bankers. Central bankers have been doing QE, cutting interest rates to near zero, because they've just been trying to, you know, the central bankers are just tied to what we call the, the neutral rate of interest. Um, it's, it's, uh, and over the long run, that neutral rate of interest is really reflective of potential growth. Now, as Working age populations uh, slow, uh, slow, slow down uh, in their growth. You know, as investment spending slows for a whole host of reasons, and as productivity has been a little constrained, uh, potential growth is considerably lower. Looking ahead to the next couple of decades, than it has been for the last you know, well hundred years. So, um, so what I'm trying to say is. 
you've got to think about, okay, what's the appropriate rate of interest? What's the appropriate bond yields that yields could climb back up to given all these demographic investment productivity headwinds? It's not 10, 15% like we saw in the 70s and 80s. It's, 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 it's more like you know, uh, sort of 2, 3, 4%, which you know, clearly you know, if, if bond yields moved from where they are today to 3 or 4%, that would be a pretty capital loss for, big capital loss for bondholders. But it's not Armageddon. I don't think you can characterise that as a bubble. Okay, so based on where we are now then and what you think the outlook is for bond yields um, and what they are currently, what does this mean for for the kind of assets we were talking about at the start there, those dividend-paying quality stocks? And what does it mean for other assets? Which are, which are the ones which you think are likely to outperform from here and are those different to the ones that have been performing? Yeah, so... Uh... Yeah, bond, when bond yields start to rise, it's usually because growth is improving. Yeah, that means that it's reflected in slightly higher inflation and it's infle- reflected in higher real yields because you know, central bankers will start to have to tighten the monetary cycle because growth is improving. Otherwise, you know, things would get a bit too frothy. Whilst on the one hand, higher bond yields results in tomorrow's earnings being translated in today's price at a, at a harsher rate... It also means that those earnings are likely to be revised up because we're getting growth, and that's why bond yields uh, are, are rising. So it goes back to what we said a few moments ago. If you've got a um, a bond proxy that is a quality cash compounding company that does deliver growth, it should be fine. If you've got a bond proxy that is really just all about this thirst for yield and not much else then it's unlikely to be able to deliver that earnings growth and it's going to fall behind. Okay. Um, I mean, another interesting kind of area or asset class um, are the banking stocks. And we have seen, um, well, we've seen a good swathe of results coming out from banks, um, US, a couple in the UK, um, and they are ticking up and banks very related to interest rates. Do you think this is an area that will start to appeal? It's obviously looking very cheap. Well, certainly, uh, if we can see a clearer path to a tightening cycle by the, uh, particularly by the Federal Reserve, most obviously, I guess, um, then bank stocks should um, should outperform. As you said, valuations are really beaten up. Now, the US fixed its banking sector years ago, um, way ahead of the UK, and in Europe, the banking crisis still trundles on with about you know, 300 billion euros worth of bad loans still to be crystallised in Italy by our back of the envelope calculation. But unfortunately, US bank valuations have been depressed by the negative sentiment towards banking globally. So, if we see um, if we see a clearer path to higher uh, interest rates, higher net interest margins for banks. Um, uh, then, then there could be uh, quite a quite a reversion in U.S. equity valuations. And actually, we've been looking at regional banks in the U.S. recently, and they've been on on a tear. You know, they've outperformed um, the S and P by about ten percent over the last six 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 months. Um, so, yeah, I think it is something to to consider. I wouldn't go fishing in Europe. Still, some still big problems there. But 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 the US, those valuations are starting to look attractive. Okay, and then just finally on that, what do you think will be the biggest driver of markets in the next three months? Say, is it US elections? Is it a potential rate rise? 
oh well i think it's got to be what's going to happen on tuesday <laughs> yeah i mean that's the immediate that's the, the immediate headwind um you know we think trump could be uh, pretty bad news in the short term we're more concerned about what trump and his protectionism etc means for longer term growth around the world if he kickstarts a beggar thy neighbor trade war um that could be pretty poor for for long term returns but you know trump's likely to inject a lot of uncertainty in the short term markets hate uncertainty probably going to mean lower valuations okay and uh well let's talk actually about your your views on protectionism and trump um because we're just going to look at a report that you've written which is all about that isn't it um yeah is it all about trump's america first you know, campaign? Is it more global than that? Tell us a bit about what you've written. Well, unfortunately, it is a bit more global than that. We've seen uh, protectionist rhetoric creep into um, all sorts of campaigns. We saw it in the Democrats' primary with, with, with Bernie Sanders. Uh, Sanders and Senator Elizabeth Warren are, are very, at least, anti-free trade, if not out-and-out protectionist bit of a fine fine line there uh in europe again with some of the so-called populist movements in various countries many of them are anti-free trade verging on the on the protectionist and actually if we look at what trade measures have are being you know passed all around the world in the first four months of this year three times as many protectionist measures tariffs duties etc uh were uh, were imposed by countries around the world than they have been at any equivalent period over the last 10 months. So protectionism is on the rise, even without protectionist leaders being in power yet. But what are you saying is, what is the result of these protectionist measures? Why is it inherently bad for countries to attempt to protect their own industries? Well, so it's, it's been on the rise. And, and so far, yeah, it's sort of fairly isolated, idiosyncratic uh, cases. So it's no reason to be too alarmed just yet. But if we move to a situation that, that Trump uh, peddles, where you know, you're, opposing bl- you're imposing blanket 45% tariffs on a certain country's uh, exports to you, then, um, then, then that's a very different situation. That's likely to move to a wholesale shift towards protectionism around the world. If you look at the history uh, of the last 250 years, whenever there are big protectionist statements made by one country, it doesn't end there. It usually results in a full-blown tariff war and what are, what are some examples of that and what were the outcomes well you saw it in the in the in the in the 1930s um because countries couldn't stimulate their economy via monetary policy because they were on the gold standard they uh decided to try and stimulate domestic injury in industries by shutting off foreign competition didn't end very well uh, you, you saw it in there. And sorry, when you say didn't end well, we're, which measures are you looking at? Are you looking at kind of GDP well, so growth? growth yeah, so growth, um, yeah, G- GDP growth, productivity growth, uh, real incomes, um, yeah, the sort of key key measures that, that matters. And what's really important for um, you know, long-term investors is that over the long-term, investment returns are tied to economic returns. Uh, and as we mentioned earlier, you've got demographic headwinds, you've got headwinds to invested capital. So productivity needs to be doing most of the heavy lifting. We think that what's going to differentiate investment returns around the world over the next 25 years is productivity. But protectionism is the death knell for productivity. By definition, it shuts off foreign competition, right? And if you don't have 
competition, if your industry is now protected, you've got far less incentive to um, invest in you know, new systems, new policies, new tools that enhance productivity because you don't need to. You've got a captive uh, market. Similarly, it prevents uh, capital being allocated to high productive industries. If you've now got to make your own T-shirts because you can't import them anymore, it means you've got to funnel a lot of money and a lot of human capital into the T-shirt industry, which isn't a very value-added, high-value-added productive industry. And it means that that money can't go into technology or engineering. Although arguably, I I guess the flip side is otherwise you're buying T-shirts that get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and someone in the chain loses out from that kind of race to the bottom or this kind of comparative advantage, which is the way that the system works in an ultimate kind of free trade scenario. Uh, well, I wouldn't go so far as that's sort of how it theoretically works in an ultimate free trade scenario, but certainly there has been some exploitative tendencies amongst capital owners in emerging markets, and uh, and there has uh, been some uh, negative consequences of uh, um, a race to a bottom, as you say. But I think you know, very few economists, even economists uh, like Joseph Stiglitz or Danny Roderick, who are uh, who question the recent history of globalization they still all agree that free trade has lifted millions if not billions of people out of poverty globally because it has opened up markets that they would otherwise be closed off to comparative advantage isn't by definition a race to the bottom it's about allowing countries to enjoy markets where they have some relative a productive advantage to everyone else. So if you're a developed country, you can import your T-shirts and concentrate on making electoral goods. If you're a developing country, you now have a big global marketplace to sell T-shirts rather than the few subsistent farmers, which is what it was sort of 50, 60 years ago. Okay. But so let's just get down to what this means for investors what in the worst kind of outcome of trump being elected and enacting the most protectionist policies what does that mean for people investing in global equities and in u.s equities you know what what should they do well i think in the near term uh, it's going to precipitate a big risk-off environment uh, you know we sort of call it um uh a sort of a, an uncertainty shock yeah, we've seen something unprecedented this year, or at least unprecedented for the last 25 years, and that's political uncertainty has been driving economic uncertainty. And economic uncertainty alone can slow growth, derail employment decisions, and affect financial market valuations. Trump comes with a whole bunch of uncertainty, foreign policy uncertainty, his fiscal plan has big gaping holes in it. You know, he even talks about not repaying US debt, right? You know, there's lots of uncertainty to Trump. Markets hate uncertainty. That's felt through higher equity risk premiums, lower valuations, big risk-off environment in in the short term. In the longer term, again, it affects those uh, returns via productivity. You've got investors have got to look at okay, which countries are joining the protectionist war which countries are maybe taking a slightly different approach and thereby perhaps preserving uh, some productivity growth. Okay, so on that slightly unnerving note, I guess, (laughs) that's all we've got time for this week. For more on everything we've discussed today, have a look at the magazine. Otherwise, it just remains for me to thank my guests, Ed Smith and Emma Adjaman, and wish you a good weekend. (laughs) 